And we are back. Thank you so much for sticking with us. And now, as I always say, it's it's my favorite time of the show. And one of the reasons why is, um, you know, inter- interviewing people takes some takes some work. Hopefully, we do a decent job of it here. Um, but it's it's much easier than carrying a show by yourself. That's one of the reasons why the, the other reason why is because I get to have really smart people on that know more about stuff than I do. And, uh, I get to scratch my intellectual curiosity itch. So I know for a fact, this next guest will do all of the, the above for us. Uh, he is our macro guru, Chase Taylor, a pinecone macro research chase. Thanks so much for joining us and, uh, glad to have you on the show again. Yeah, always great to be on. I appreciate you having me back, Zach. Oh, you bet, pal. Um, okay, so let's just come right out of the gate. Um, yeah, you know, I am obviously known as a guy that pulls a lot of punches, that doesn't usually say what he thinks, but today I'm going to make an exception. Um, what in the world is going on in the macro world? Uh, I, the, and, and let me frame this, Chase, just so you know what I'm talking about. Um, one of the things that I've been doing is looking at looking at the pressures on companies' earnings, Um, Looking at the dollar, looking at rates, a lot of these conversations you and I have had, you know this. And I was just sitting there looking at everything going, you know, if the S&P, when it was down 20% year to date, and I was like, you know, based on what's happening with rates and the Fed and all that kind of stuff, in the next 6 to 12 months, I'll be pretty surprised if the S&P doesn't bleed another 20% from here. And I didn't really think that that was a crazy scenario at all. Um just be, you know, because everybody's like, oh, we dropped so much. But I don't think people realize how insanely expensive markets were at the beginning of last year. And so I I, I don't really see this 20% hit we've had as much of a drop as it is just so much of an adjustment to, you know, to the, to the, to the, to the quickest, as a percentage anyway, the quickest rate hiking cycle in history. Um, and the market seems to act like good times are here again. What are we? What are we seeing right now? What are you seeing in the macro world? Is this going to be an environment where you know certain companies are going to get hammered? Right, obviously, um, certain ones aren't. But is this going to be a, a environment where we're just kind of steadily fighting inflation, and there's really no big macro fireworks, um, and that? You know, maybe you could see stocks bounce around or or, or is this setting the table for a bigger draw? I, I, I feel much less certain now. Also, and I'm talking too much right now. I just want to make sure I set it up for the listeners and for you also. I, I've also been long expecting a bear market rally. And thank God when this week hit, it, we were the least amount hedged we've been at any time in the last six months. And I, I timing is lucky. Um, so I'm not, I'm, this isn't, this isn't me throwing a fit. This isn't me being mad because the market's getting me wrong. A couple of our biggest positions are Apple and uh, Amazon. So, I mean, it's actually been a nice week. Um, but, but I, I'm just now that it's happening and watching what's rallying and the strength of the rally, I'm sitting there going, is this more, because what it's showing me right now, just on this week, it looks like the market is completely brushing off the risk of higher rates. Or are they already pricing in rate cuts? I, I'm a bit confused as to what the what, what to make of the market and then the macro out, uh, backdrop. So I've kind of given you a, like 40 questions in one there, but <laughs> kind of just lay out the landscape for us and help help clear some things up here. Yeah, so I think at the end of the day, what we're really having is everyone everyone's been focused on inflation, and now all of a sudden growth is becoming the focus. And once growth becomes the focus, and you realize how fast it's slowing. 
then all of a sudden you can start looking at, okay, well, rates are peaking out. If you ask me, I think uh, rates have, have peaked. Like, it, that's over. I think it's, it's pretty much down from here or sideways at worst. So that really takes a lot of pressure off. And and when I say that, I mean I mean treasury yields, not necessarily Fed funds rate. I, I think my base case right now is the Fed does 25 basis points in September and they're done. And I think that will be just because growth is going to look so bad. The labor market will break between now now and then, um, start showing some weakness. So you, you have the scenario where the worse the economy gets, the better policy gets. And at the end of the day, I think, I think, you know, the stock market cares a little bit more about policy than it does the real economy. And if they start, you know, markets start, start feeling like they're, they're going to get their liquidity back in the next, you know, six months or 12 months, then it's going to start pricing that in. I think that's what we're seeing. I, I too thought we'd go farther down than, than we have. I, to me, you know, getting down to 3,600 wasn't going to be enough. I thought it was going to be, I thought 34, 3,500 was going to be about where, where we got to. Um, and so my gut still says, you know, hey, this is probably a bear market rally. Let me go back down. Uh, like, like yourself, you know, I flipped from being short the S&P to long the S&P at the end of last week. Um, that has gone very well. And mostly I did that just because I, I thought everyone had gotten just way too bearish and essentially quit and just moved to cash. And that's the, that's the best time to get everyone chasing back again whenever something good happens. And that's what we're in right now. Everyone's chasing to get back in because things are starting to look a little better. And, but, but that can trap people, you know, at the worst time. And we kind we kind of go back down, but I will say, I always seem to think there's going to be one more leg down and, <laughs> and every, in every like, you know, bear market we have. So I, I'm really focused on that and understanding like, Hey, like you always think there's going to be another leg down, so be really cognizant of that, and that means this may this may be it. That that may have been the bottom, and you know I, I feel like I know I have to be ready for that being you know the eventuality. And I think a lot of people, when they look at the market, they look at good or bad instead of getting better or getting worse. And what moves markets isn't good or bad; it's it's getting better or getting worse. And right now, right. the macro environment, from a policy perspective, is getting better because it, you know, Jay Powell said we're at neutral and. He paid a little bit of lip service to, you know, trying to be nimble. So I, I think he was trying to still sound tough and give the Hawks what they want, but also give the Doves what they want to say, like, hey, like, the next meeting's two months away. A lot can happen. We are seeing some stuff kind of break down, so we're cognizant of that, too. Uh, and I think that was enough to give people license to view, you know, an actual uh, change in policy or, or at least, you know, a slow, a big slowdown in, in the rate of of. Uh, rate hikes and yeah like i say september is that's that's a long ways away there's gonna be a lot of data that comes out between now and then so there's a lot that can move the fed you know in that in that short amount of time one of the well i've got a bunch of things i want to throw at you um okay so you're saying that when you when you're and and it's one of the reasons that we're going to work together. It's one of the reasons we do work together is I, i love your approach of turning out the tuning out the noise and focusing on the data. And for people out there, listeners uh, of this show that think that I'm reversing case and now all of a sudden a couple days of a rally uh, have made me change my stance, that's not the case, guys. But but what you have to learn in this business, and it took me a, a, a lot of pain and, and, and more years than I'd like to admit to learn this, is you have to be nimble. Um, 
I know you're a I know you're a Texas football fan, but you saw the movie Friday Night Lights, right? Of course. Yeah. Okay. Remember remember in the last game when uh, uh, Booby uh, Booby Miles, right, the star star running back, he's hurt, he's on the sidelines, and he's talking to the fullback, and he's telling him, you know, because he had a fumbling problem, and he told him, quit quit fighting it, roll with it. Um, maybe that's a weak analogy. But I always think about it in times like this when the market is going against what you think it should or or what you think it is going to do. Just take my take my advice. Don't fight it. Right. If you don't if you don't get it, sit aside and sit in a neutral position in cash until you get your feet under it. But don't fight it. And I just what it looks like to me, Chase, if, if and correct me if I'm wrong, but what it looks like to me is this market, like you said, is is trying to price in not as bad of news that there it also seems to be wanting to price in, especially in the treasury markets that, like you said, yields have peaked. And it's sort of, to me, looking like it's pricing in the Fed threading the needle, like everything's going to go OK. We're going to get inflation underway. Are, are there any signs of that? Because I'm and, and, and the reason I bring this up is, again, I know the markets are not this efficient, and I know that they don't always reflect what I think should be good value. But when I think back to stock valuations in January 1 of 2020, right, prior, prior to any of the COVID stuff that hit, and I look at the state of the economy back then, and I look at the positioning of the Fed, I, I look at today, and there, I don't think there's a single data point you can point to, economically speaking, that is better than it was January 1st, 2020. And yet equity markets and valuations are way above still where we were January 1, 2020. So, and markets are forward looking. Is this market pricing in? Do you see that as a possibility that we can just kind of muddle through for a little bit and we'll get inflation under control and then it's to infinity and beyond again? Um, or, or, are the economic tea leaves what what are you seeing as far as the hard economic data goes yeah so i don't think the economy can muddle through but that doesn't mean that stocks can't muddle through mm-hmm. um but when it comes to the economy like even the fed themselves have, have kind of made it clear like hey you know the 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 runway we're trying to land on here for the soft landing is getting pretty tight <laughs> so i think i think they even see the fact that they're you know trying to to land a 747 on like a, a Cessna runway, essentially. I, I, I think, think are, I think I, I think they actually I think they swapped out to a Harrier jump jet, man, because uh, <laughs> yeah. they, they need they need to land in a parking spot. Yeah, our aircraft carrier. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I think that's fair. Like I I think they kind of recognize at this point, like probably not going to happen. And and as we we know, you know, monetary policy works with a lag. And we just so in the last 30 years, we've had three 75 basis point hikes two were in the last 30 something days Jeez. like so whenever that happens and that and you remember that that works with the lag so that's not even going to be felt or seen in the data for a few months and that that just tells me like the, the amount of weakness that's going to hit the economy is going to be substantial um housing i continue to to really point to as kind of something that's kind of be it's an accident waiting to happen in a big way. Uh, if you look at new home supply, it's actually only been worse in the last 20 something years, only in 08. Like, so only during the actual blow up of real estate was new home inventories higher than they are right now. And we started the, and we started the year under the 10 year average. And now we're 
almost the highest we've been, you know, in a, in a generation. So. What, and what I think that what I think is really important to point out, because there's people that I've heard trying to spin that number and listen, I, they, they could be right. I could be wrong. But I think what's important to point out is that, you you know, you're, you're citing back to the last time it was this bad was 2008. Remember, guys, what caused that? It, it wasn't you know, the, the what what caused that in 2008 was you couldn't sell if you wanted to. Right. Or, or you couldn't sell for anywhere close to what you owed. Right. So, you know, I think you've got a similarity now on just on the other side of it, which is if you're not in a house, you can't buy the house you want. Right. Do you, do you think that's fair? Yeah. And when it, and when it comes to housing, like I'm not I'm not, you know, by any means saying we're going to have another OA. It's, it's nothing right. like that. Right. I agree. And, and I think obviously, as I said, I think, you know, bond yields have peaked, which means I think mortgage rates have peaked and are going to go back down. So that will help, you know, all that kind of calm down. So it's not going to be a, a terrible, you know, crisis or anything, but we've never had more homes in the pipeline that are being built and are kind of going to come online. And we've, you know, we've never had this, this like fast of an appreciation of supply. So supply is moving much higher. And then there's still a ton, you know, kind of in, in the pipeline waiting to come on. And as supply chains ease up for, for these home builders, you know, they're going to be finishing these homes and they're going to look around and no one wants any. So they're going to, they're going to have to let people go. They're going to have, you know, their suppliers are going to have to let people go. So it, it might, it's not going to be a housing crash, but it'll be a hangover big enough to really, to really hit the economy, I think. Um, well, where's that? Where, where would that sweet spot be, though, Chase? Because, I mean, let's say, let's say you had a 15 to 20% pullback in housing prices. And, these, and because I think the other thing that we've got to be conscious of, people are like, 15 to 20%. I'm like, guys, did, didn't we go up like the equivalent of like 23% last year in housing? Is that yeah. is that accurate? Year, year over year, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. So if you're talking about a 15 to 20 percent pullback, like that's not extreme in this environment. You just saw a 23 percent rally last year. So I, you know, I know that sounds bad, but what I'm saying is, if you get a 15 to 20 percent pullback in housing, and you get mortgages, and I don't know how far they can fall in this environment with the Fed funds rate being now at two and a quarter, but let's could you could the 30 year fall back to four in this environment? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, if obviously we're in, we're in a technical recession, I think we're kind of like in the early innings of a of a real recession that would be you know declared by the the eggheads. And I think in in that kind of scenario, like that that totally makes sense to go back to four because you know long term bonds will will kind of go go down significantly in yields. Um, and and right now we have kind of a historically high spread between mortgage rates and like the in the ten year. Usually that's that's pretty tight, you know, correlation. And right now it's like a hundred basis point blowout because, you know, the Fed went from, from buying to selling MBS for, you know, for one thing. Yeah. So, so, and I wonder where that, where that point is. What I'm thinking is, is if you had a 20% pullback in housing prices, you know, kind of secularly across the country and the 30 year, I think as of today, it's at like five, two, five, three. Um, and if the 30 year pulled back to four, just just that makes a huge difference in mortgage payments. I mean, that that would probably drop yeah, a, your average mortgage payment 30, 40%, something like that. Um, so that could reignite it. But here's the thing. <clears throat> if they get to a point where they reignite housing, and this, this is the thing that I'm having a tough time wrapping my – like the market's looking at me, looking at everything, kind of saying, oh, this is okay. We don't think companies' earnings are going to get drilled. And I'm looking at it and going, hey, guys, if there's not going to be a bad economic outcome – inflation just comes right back on the front burner, does it not? 
Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the Fed kind of they need a bad economic outcome. Um, it, you know, right? Term, they don't need it to be horrific, but they need it to be. They need people to not feel so so rich. They need people to feel some pain and to dial back consumption considerably. Now, I think I think a lot of the inflation, you know, just came from a one-off supply shock, a one-off demand shock, and then you know, obviously, commodity prices just having a just a rampage year over year. And I, I think essentially all of that comes out. The only, the only thing that, that the Fed should be genuinely afraid of at moving forward would be the labor market staying tight. If the labor market stays tight and wage, wage growth kind of picks up and even gets above inflation, that, that's when like they should be like actually afraid this stuff sticks around you know, long term. Um, because you know the inflation and, and things like goods and services, it really just it, it cannot hang on while, while real, real incomes are going down. So like most of the inflation we have right now is, is very unsustainable. I, I think, uh, as some, someone mentioned, like, obviously it wasn't transitory. I spent all last year making fun of transitory. Yeah. But I think if you look at, if you, if you really zoomed out though, and you looked at the inflation chart, say 50 years from now at, at 2022, and then you looked at it after that, you'd be like, well, it kind of was transitory. Like it, yeah. you know, it spiked to nine and it went back down to like three. Like, well, that's, that is transitory, but you know, if I'd have told you five years ago, hey, we're going to go up and have persistent 3% inflation, you'd be like, ooh, that's bad. That's pretty high. And I, I just think that's where we're heading. Um, and But I, mostly because of mostly because of energy and deglobalization type, type you know, and, and for me, demographics. Like, all, all those trends are enough to have that kind of 3% inflation instead of 2%, I, I think. Yeah, I know. But, I would but, agree with you. I would agree with you. And, and the other thing I would agree with you is – I, you know, I'm with you on the transitory thing. Um, I felt like kind of with some of the hardcore inflationistas, I, I kind of felt like they thought I was a pariah because I said that, you know, I thought some of it was, look, supply chains are not going to take it into infinity to sort themselves out, right? People aren't stupid. They're going to get these things, you know, for the most part, you will have structurally higher prices. Like you said, the unraveling of globalization. Um, the one, the, the one part that you brought up though, that's interesting to me is energy and commodities. And I think everybody knows you're in my take on it long-term. Um, but I'd like to hear your take both long-term and short-term, because one of the things I'm looking at is going, okay, if the market is correct, if the market is looking out 18 months and the picture that it sees that that is that, you know, that that reflection of today's price, right. Is correct. 18 months from now. Then once again, I'd have to assume that commodity, you know, if the econ- like again, if 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 the market is right, pricing that the economy and both the market are going to muddle through and and things will be okay, um, commodity prices are going to rip a lot higher, aren't they? I mean, because because this pullback in commodity prices is simply been a reflection of slowing economics, right, or the slowing economy. Yeah, the, the, it's not. It's definitely not been like a supply response. Uh, it, it's been yeah, just demand. But uh, yeah. what I will say is like kind of the commodity permables and cheerleaders, they tend to lose sight of the fact that, you know, a collapse in demand like really hammers the commodity prices, even if supply is really tight. So like an oil, like supply is really tight. It was really tight when oil was 130 and it's really tight now that oil is 98, but it, demand has gone down and that, that is enough to, you know, cool, cool the market off a lot. Um, and some of these, you know, some commodities think, think of like copper where like half the, the demand comes from China. Well, if China has a significant slowdown and they don't, you know, bring out the, the fire hose of liquidity to, to fight it, then it, then the price crashes 40%. And that's, that's kind of what we've seen. So long-term until we see a ton of investment and, and new supply, 
you kind of realize like, okay, well, medium term, like we have to go higher. So when I look at things like oil and copper, I think medium term, we absolutely have to go higher. Um, short term, we don't. Short term, as you know, global economy, U.S. economy, however you want to look at it, keep kind of stair stepping down when it comes to growth, when it comes to demand, uh, then you know that it can keep going down. I my gut on on something like oil is is we probably still need to go down a little bit more. Um, I don't think the bottom is really in yet. It could be because supply is really ugly, but I, I just think the demand problem hasn't really been fully priced in just yet and so I, I think in the next yeah i don't know like two months something like that you're gonna see a lot of like when the labor market breaks it's gonna become you know a little bit more obvious like oh we are in a recession and not just a technical recession but what i what i would refer to as an egghead recession where the nber would say it's a recession um and that's when I think people have to accept that well, maybe hundred dollar oil doesn't make sense in, in in a recession. I I I think uh, and and again I'm not saying this because I don't agree with the take. I'm saying it because I <laughs> I love your use of the term egghead. This feels like uh, you know recession not recession. It feels like a fight between the math club and the chess club. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> because it's so wonkish. Meaning it's a really annoying debate. It, it really is where you're like, hey, guys, first of all, who cares what the technical definition of a recession yeah. is? Right. And truthfully, either of you. The the right. And whatever your outlook is or ever whatever what you want to happen, that will be the definition you grab onto. Yeah, exactly. Right. But I mean, universally considered, it's two consecutive quarters of declining GDP growth, which we unquestionably have uh, on real terms anyway. Um, one of the things that I want to switch to and ask you about, uh, was China, but, but, but even before we get to that, just something that I've been amazed by. Um, <laughs> and I know that you're a macro guy, you're not really focusing on individual company fundamentals, but, um, one of the arguments that I've made is that, you know, obviously there's going to be pockets of companies that, that navigate this successfully and do well. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's nothing ever. You know, I think it's very dangerous to paint with a too broad a brush, especially in markets. Generally speaking, this is going to be a very difficult environment to continue earnings growth or even to maintain the earnings that you've seen over the last two and three years. Um, you know, setting aside the anomalies of COVID and all that kind of stuff. But um, <clears throat> one of the things I looked at is I was like, look, if if we are right about earnings and that secularly secular earnings have peaked, which I believe is the case for a variety of different reasons, um, then if you're a big market bull right now, that means that you believe as interest rates rise and as you deal with you know, a Fed stepping aside, tightening money supply, earnings dropping, that what you're arguing for is multiple expansion in the face of falling earnings. And I was like, that just cannot happen. This week... Walmart reports earnings, year, earnings year over year down 25% uh, on a you know quarter to quarter comp. Um, and since then, their stock multiple has gone up. So they're trading at like 134 prior to the release of that earnings data. And I think today they're at like 132. So, <laughs> so I was like, hey, that can't happen. Falling earnings, yeah, rising and, interest and it rates. It wasn't just bad earnings, but like warnings about the future too. So like... It- I, I, I know, man, and I'm watching this market action, and I just it's it kind of the other thing that feels like it's happening right now is that 
Mike Green's ETF thing is coming into play. You know, it's almost like the market has 20 to 30% slack of active people that we can, you know, the active side of it can run it either way. But once we reach the end of our, of, of our stack of ammo, then wherever that leaves us, like ETF flows, just start taking over from there. You know what I'm saying? Like, so all, all the bulls get all bared up. We make money to the short side. We're betting against it. All of a sudden, or excuse me, the bears get bared up. We're betting against the market. We knock it down 20, 21%. Then we all state start, start taking our profits again. We don't want to short it because we don't want to get run over by a bear market rally. Volumes start to dry up and then passive flows just take over and start marching us higher. Right. Do you think that's what's happening right now? I think that is always there. It's always underlying and it's always pushing stocks higher. Obviously, like you say, you can have like a wave of active buying or selling that, that really move the market around. And, and typically it's going to be based on, you know, big macro stuff like you know, after the Fed meeting, you know, we've gone straight up. So that's always going to be there. But um, I actually wrote a, our, my monthly report a couple of months ago all about passive, um, cause mostly just because I wanted to do a deep dive on it. It's kind of an academic piece, and I'm pretty sure most people didn't read it or, or find it that interesting. But one, one of the things I learned in that was that if you look at the the amount of trading in markets that is actual like fundamental trading from active players, it's it's less than 10%. Feels so like most it. Most of it, most of it is just pure flows. Uh, more than half the market is already a, uh, passive versus active. So most of what's happening out there is it's just you know passive flows or it's rebalancing from you know big ETFs and mutual funds and stuff like that. Almost none of the trading that's going on is because some smart person penciled it out and decided to change their mind on something. It's just not not really how it how it goes for the most part. Yeah, I it, it's funny you say that because to hear you say that it doesn't surprise me at all. That's what it feels like. And, and if you've been engaged in this market for the last 10 years, and, and it's been way more extreme, obviously, the last three, and I mean this on either side, what you start to realize is that it feels like the thing that matters the least <laughs> is fundamentals. I mean, like I just said with Walmart, I mean, like you said, bad guidance, 25% drop year over year on earnings. And one of the things I was thinking about, Chase, is, if this quarter was that bad on a year-over-year basis, what is fourth quarter going to look like? You know, as a comp, right? Because, I mean, I don't know if you're aware, but the earnings anomaly that happened in the fourth quarter of last year, are you, are you, have you looked at that at all? No, but, I'm a, I mean, uh, but I can easily picture it in my head where that yeah, was. Record profits, just across, yeah. uh, almost, every, like, almost every sector. I mean, if you look at it on a chart long term, it's, I mean, it's just a it's just a this crazy spike right and, and Q, q4 for the economy is probably going to be whenever it's it's really feeling pain because that's when the labor market will have will actually be breaking down so it's, it's going to be a nasty combo i think in q4 and 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 then and that thing now is trading at a higher multiple post earnings or the other day shopify comes out now shopify is still trading it 12 times revenue something like that i mean i don't you know that's it's cheaper than 50 times revenue, but I wouldn't say 12 times revenue is exactly a blue light special, right? Um, no. That's still <laughs> still pretty. That's still pretty sporty. Um, they come out big disappointment on earnings. Stock drops 16 percent. Very next day, they pop back 12 percent because Google released good earnings. <laughs> and, you're just, and you're just sitting there going, and, "Okay, this, this makes tons of sense." And, 
what's funny about that is um, one of the things I in that a lot of that research I was doing on on passive, you realize the increased correlation uh, that that tends to happen because everything kind of you know starts working so tightly together. Um, so whenever a, a stock gets put into uh, the index, it just like magically changes its behavior and starts to move closely with the other 499 stocks in the, in the S&P 500. It's like it literally just joined a new school of fish and started swimming with them. Yeah, um, because so it because it, now it's part of a different index. All of a sudden, it's worth 20% more. Yeah, because all that passive money it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't care what its earnings were it doesn't it doesn't none of that all it cares about is like well it's in that index so here you go here's money it's it's wild man okay so so switching gears a little bit because i this is a very interesting topic to me and like most other things that i think are interesting uh the world doesn't seem to care <laughs> and, and and i would like to think that's because they're wrong uh i know there's obviously times where it's because I'm wrong, but um, I just wanted to go over this one with you. I want to look at China. I, I just haven't. It's it's kind of quiet how that's or kind of interesting how that's become such a quiet topic and seems to really be put on the back burner lately. Now I'm not watching this stuff, especially abroad, as close as you are. But my understanding is is that uh, China is moving their posture back toward a stimulative environment, and they're trying to open things up pretty aggressively right now. Is that the case? And if not, kind of give us from your, from your perspective, what's going on there. And in, in, in my opinion, the answer to that's pretty much no. So they, they are, they keep, you know, about once a week, they come out and say like, Hey, the code zero, like that, that's still a thing. That's still what we're doing now. Some of the, you know, some of the cities have tried to loosen up a little bit on that. But in general, they're going to keep doing, you know, lockdowns whenever COVID gets bad somewhere. Obviously, that is a, a huge headwind for growth. Now they have announced some stimulus, um, but it's kind of like this: like out of one side of their mouth, they're talking about stimulus, but out of the other side of their mouth, they're still talking about keeping debt under control. And they have all these rules about, you know, the way uh, cities or regions, or whatever, can't take out more than X amount of debt or they'll get, you know, penalized heavily if they, if they do. So, and they've made it very clear. They're not going to do, you know, massive stimulus like they did, um, the, the, the last couple of times, you know, Oh eight and whatever it was, 2015 or something like that. Um, so really I, it, it's not that great of a situation yet. Yes. They're like, I mean, they are easing a little bit you know, monetarily, they're not doing the insane, you know, kind of fixed asset investment they were doing at, at other times, just like flooding their markets with liquidity. Um, so you- really, it's kind of it, it's it's a bad setup, and and you know what really makes their economy go is is internally at least in the way that everyone saves money and invests is is housing, and housing is obviously just a giant dumpster fire in China right now, um, in, in multiple ways. So. Overall, China still it just does not look great. Now, it's one of the, you know, th- their cycle is sort of the opposite of a lot of the rest of the world right now. And the problem for them, too, is, you know, U.S. demand is going to go f- falling off a cliff. European demand is going to fall off a cliff. So all their exports are going to get hammered, um, which is going to be very bad timing for them for obvious reasons. So in, in general, I-, I-, I think it's pretty bad setup in China right now. 
Do you think it's fair to say, <clears throat> and, and I am open to listening to your take on it, because, again, I know you, you're watching this stuff closer than I am. Um, I continue to look at this whole China situation, and, and the, the mainstream story just doesn't make any sense to me. What does make sense to me is that these are consumption and commodity lockdowns. Now, again, I say that somebody out there that might really know about China might be laughing right now thinking I'm an idiot. I, th that could entirely be the case. Like I said, I have not done a lot of work on this. This is just kind of my periphery read. Um, where are you at on that? Would you agree with me or do you think that there's some legitimacy? I just – I'm looking at their policies, scratching my head going, I, I just kind of feel like that's the only puzzle piece that fits. Yeah, it's been like I, I've really just scratched my head at the COVID zero stuff and tried to make sense of it. I really can't. But it comes down to two things, I think. One, their uh, their vaccine's terrible, and they're afraid that a lot of old people will die if they get it. But uh, to me, we, we've kind of clearly gotten to the point like we're even with a, a, a shabby vaccine, and you have you know eighty something percent of your old people having been vaccinated, and Omicron being so much you know less lethal than than prior iterations of the virus like hey you could probably let it run pretty hot and you'll be fine so that does lend credence to what you said kind of like a commodity situation so what I, what i will say is for a long time i've been kind of in the like they're not going to invade taiwan because it doesn't make any sense camp but if you think about it from that standpoint of okay well if you're going to invade taiwan and you might get cut off from you know western energy and food markets what, what you would want to do is store up as much as you could um so yeah, doing some incremental lockdowns before before you decided to do your invasion and have, have you'd have, have like a, a buffer of of oil and gas laying around and and have biden i'm not you. saying that's what's happening but it's and one it, of the few ways that i can make sense of what in the world they're doing with these lockdowns and then if that's the case then you've got biden helping them out selling five million barrels i mean i know that's not a lot but five million barrels out of the uh out of the spr right yeah and uh, the awkward thing too for biden is like the only real spare capacity there is in the world for refining uh, to get you know gasoline prices down is in China. Like, it, it's a genuine situation where we we like very badly need them to do a lot more exporting of of gasoline and diesel. Um, it, it's an area where, to me, like I, I would I would actually go to them and be like, hey, I need you to do more, and you know, we'll we'll pull back some tariffs for you to do that because. Nobody else has the the capacity to do it. They, now, they, obviously, like that's gotten a little bit better in, like, say, the last you know, whatever four to six weeks with gasoline prices being down about thirty percent. But but still, like, it's still needed very badly. Okay, now switching a little bit into geopolitics here, and I don't want to stay here because I just I think well, I don't think I know this business is hard enough without trying to include political calculus, right? Um, yeah. But one of the things that I think about, and again, this, when I say this isn't a political statement, this situation existed 10 years ago, and it's existed every year since then. And there have been different parties in power over those 10 years. So I'm not one of those people that, you know, you're not going to hear me beating up Obama for doubling the debt and then not mention the fact that W. Bush did the exact same thing. Um, you know, I just, I just think that's disingenuous. Having said that, um, if what you just said is true, and I, I, know, it, I know it's true, uh, about refineries in china isn't that a national security issue shouldn't our answer to that not be hoping that china gets theirs back online but that we soften our position and at least have enough refining capability here in the united states to be able to run our economy without relying on chinese and russian distillates so in my opinion obviously the answer is yes but it, but what i will say is we could fulfill our own demand if we had to 
the issue would be like you, you would have to stop exporting. Um, and, and the other thing is we have to retool our refineries to better refine you know the the crude that we that we actually get out of the ground instead of the, the stuff we get from from other places. So like, but that takes a while, doesn't it, Chase? I mean, you yeah, can't does, just do that overnight. It's one of those things like I I have never and will never understand why. Because if you want to actually be energy independent, then then you have your refiners able to deal with your crude, um, and you at least have it to where you can cut off exports at any moment and be fine. Yeah, now, yeah, that makes sense. Now, a lot of those exports, especially especially now a- after the Russian situation, a lot of those exports are going to Europe. So obviously, obviously, you don't want to just cut off Europe because you, there's there's a price to that. Like you you're, you're trying very badly to make sure that they you know remain your friend. And, and remain, you know, really good allies, and that's not going to happen if all of a sudden you say, "Oh, by the way, thanks for thanks for all the sanctions on Russia, but we're done giving you oil and gas." Like that, that won't work. So, so you really have to make an allowance for yourself and for your, at least for your, you know, kind of key international partners. Um, but, but really, it's a, the entire Western world just just let so much of their, you know, oil and gas infrastructure just rot so they oh we'll get it out of the ground but we're going to send it over to the middle east and then we'll buy it back from them after they turn it into uh you know distillates or whatever that's just it's just bad <laughs> a bad way to do things we, don't, we just don't build anything like that in the u.s anymore and we need to like that that's something the federal government should really be spearheading is is let, let's build some new refineries in, in america and well you know because it almost seems to me and i mean obviously both are needed so you're splitting hairs here to some degree but not really in terms of when I think of infrastructure and time and money and all that other kind of stuff. It seems to me that from a geopolitical s- standpoint, it's almost more important to have refining capacity than it is to have the actual natural resource, right? Because if, if you have the refining capacity, there's just well, – most people don't, right? However, you flip over, there's a lot of places and a lot of countries in the world that you can buy your crude from, no? Yeah, it, absolutely. And, and at the end of the day, you know, we, we all – we all go to the pump and put gas in our car, not right. crude oil. So, right. Is, well, that's my other point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so you got so you're swimming on a pool of crude, and you can't distill it, or or you can't make distillates right. out of it. I mean, who cares, right? Um, okay, so 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 you're still you're not as confident that I am that this is more of a commodity driven squeeze by the CCP, but you you're also a bit flabbergasted by the their their course of action. Yeah, I, the, the the zero COVID stuff, I, I just cannot make sense of it. I I just really can't. I haven't been able to this whole time. It's kind of blown my mind. Do you think a commodity lockdown makes sense? Does that does that does that make sense? It, it does if if you know you want to. I mean that that helps a lot when it comes to your import bill. It helps a lot, you know, trying to keep their trade balance kind of even. You know, maintain their keep, peg. Keeps from losing a bunch. Yeah, like yeah, exactly. Like current it saves currency issues. Um, but obviously it, it hurts growth and it, it's politically unpopular. People are getting pretty mad about it. Uh, you've ar- even seen some, some kind of fissures in, in the communist party where some people are at least kind of speaking out against that. Um, so you, you know, G might wake up and find himself having a couple like real rivals before the next party Congress that, I mean, I don't think he wants to deal with that. So, it is a very high cost strategy. That's for sure. That's one of the things that, and, and, and that's one of the things that I think makes this market so, so tough to navigate. I, I'm thinking of a time and I thought it was confusing years ago and I'm looking at it right now and going, 
you are dealing with so many different issues at the same time, right? You've got the threat of record inflation. You have the, the threat of an overreaction to that inflation, creating a seriously deflationary drop, right? You've got credit risk all over the place. You're still looking at significantly, historically speaking, above trend valuations for virtually every asset and security. You got the real estate issue. And then you go to the global macro scene, not just global, but geopolitical scene. And I just feel like there are so many powder kegs. And that's what worries me, Chase, is in this environment, I don't think anything has hit the proverbial fan yet. But I just see so much dry powder sitting around, you know, where I feel like we're in one of these environments. And, 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 you know, you look at dollar levels, you look at inflation, you look at commodity situations. You look at what's going on in China. I, I feel like there are just so many of these things that are like hidden IEDs that could knock over the Humvee that is our economy at any given time. Do, do you think that's fair or is that too, uh, is that too perma bearish? No, at the moment, I think it's fair. So I, th- I think whenever you're in a situation with tight monetary and fiscal policy and they're actively trying to fight inflation, then you just open up a lot of vulnerabilities. Um, it's like taking the the armor off the Humvee during that time, you know, um, and, and we're obviously in that scenario. So whenever they start adding liquidity back, it really provides a buffer from that, and and you can kind of feel safe. It brings the dollar down, so the rest of the world isn't you know getting just hammered by a strong dollar and not being able to get enough of them. Um, but yeah, we're 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 in, in what I would call like a window of vulnerability. And that's that's when you're very prone to having nasty accidents. And going back to you know the passive thing, if th- there are scenarios where you can have a really ugly downside kind of um, you know mega crash, 1987 like because of the super high correlations um, and the lack of liquidity, because th- you know th- those ETFs and and you know people's 401ks they're not liquidity providers. They're they're buying on a schedule. They don't look at markets and say, "Hey, that's cheap. I'll buy it." They just they just go in there. Yeah. So when all, whenever you have so little active money that's kind of willing to step in and, and buy buy weakness, whenever they realize it's too cheap, uh, then you can get you know gap downs that are really ugly. So in, in general, I think that's right. I think we're in a situation where the you know the ability to have accidents is higher. Like obviously, and you know I say that. After you know, I went long stocks last week, and you started picking up some some of those compounders yourself. And like you said, less less hedging you've been in a long time, so you, you can surf you know bullish waves during times like this. But it, it is a time to be be a little careful, knowing that 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 heightened vulnerability does exist while the world's you know central bank is, is pulling dollars out. Well, and that's in, and for listeners out there, that's one of the things, again, I want to reiterate what we're doing. I'm not advising you to do, um, you know, we've got, we literally have people watching this stuff 24 hours a day and we've got risk levels defined. And if these things turn against us, we will get out. So I, in no way am I saying that, you know, go in there and go in there and belly up to the bar and load up on Ark and Tesla. Not that that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying as a trade, I think that there's some interesting action here. One of the other things that I think is interesting trade or, or uh, chase about where we're currently at is I am very curious to know how the market will handle a significant spike in unemployment 
And why that interests me is because of what is being referred to now as the great resignation, right? This post leaving your job post COVID. And then that, and that great resignation sort of is feeding directly into the greatest resignation, which is the retirement cycle of the baby boomers. And when we think about the bull market of the last 15 years, um, right, it's, 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 you know, stocks have reached record highs. Uh, household wealth is at a record high. When you get a scenario, so what I'm saying is we've never seen a spike in unemployment or, or, or a, a, a somewhat serious recession when we had this many people relying on the performance of equity markets to finance their retirement. And why I think that's important is that every single day, especially if the unemployment rate starts ticking up, every single day, the number of purchasers of equities, especially via passive index vehicles, is getting smaller, while the number of those who are forced sellers on a month-to-month basis in retirement is getting larger. Now, this may not this may be, you know, in the in the in the in the parlance or the or the world of fireworks, this may be nothing but a jumping jack in the future. I don't know. But I'm looking at it and I'm I'm scratching my head and going, this seems like an interesting I'm just personally really interested to see how this market will deal with that. Um, you know, because baby boomers have more wealth than any other generation before them. It's disproportionately located in stock markets. Minute you retire, you become you you move from being a buyer to a seller on a regular basis. And if that whole thing corresponds with a spike in the unemployment rate, I'm really because that that line has to be somewhere right where that whole passive thing that has been basically the jet fuel of this market for much of the last 15 years. There is a break even point where it works exactly the same way the other direction, does it not? Yes. Um, what I will say on that, something something I watched carefully and I think when it comes to this cycle is important is people that have big 401ks are oftentimes you know, like white collar workers, tech workers. And that's kind of where we're seeing the layoffs right now. So if you get a big enough wave of layoffs in, in well-paying sectors where people all have benefits, then that it, it's even kind of disproportionate at that point. Like if, if it, you know, a lot of delivery drivers lose their job, that probably isn't going to impact the, uh, you know, the the the, the stock market because the passive flows aren't going to get hit that hard. But if you get enough, you know, web developers and IT specialists and and things like that, like well, you know, that you might see some problems there. Um, but going, going back to like, and I don't, and obviously I don't know where that magic number, you know, on the unemployment rate is itself, but I think we're going to be over 5% unemployment a lot sooner than people think. And really, and you might, yeah, I do. And I think, I think you'll start to see, you know, some, uh, some pressure on, on passive, but probably not much that it's a very big ship. It's very strong. Um, and when it comes to boomers, you know, kind of having being forced sellers, I, I think that is that that is important. That will have an impact, but at the same time, they're going to be a, a lot will be handing assets to millennials that are going to that that's going to be in its own way very bullish. Yeah, um, millennials are a bigger generation, and you know, a lot of boomers didn't have the same kind of like four hundred one ks and uh, passive investments the way millennials do. So I think the the force of millennials entering the market will probably be at least close to as strong as the force of boomers exiting the market. Um, plus, you know, millennials are going to be buying stocks and boomers are going to be selling essentially stocks and bonds because 
especially especially anyone that was around to grab target day for funds they've, they've been pushed <laughs> off into a lot of bonds have i ever told um, you what i thought about those by the way <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think, I've, I think i've heard a word or two about that you're, you're definitely right i mean as we enter a secularly higher inflation regime and it doesn't have to be 10 percent inflation for the next you know 10 years but even three three and a half here and there like that that's enough to make bonds a much 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 different ball game so i i you, you and I are, have always been kind of simpatico on, on that one. Um, but going back to the, the Great Resignation, I, I think that was largely nonsense. I, yes, people, whenever people got big stimulus checks and and their house price you know doubled, like, okay, sure, some people could quit working for a couple of years. Or, you know, they became a crypto millionaire overnight. But a lot of that kind of went out with the tide. So I think a lot of those people had to come back. What, what was more important to me was... At one point, there was about 5 million people out of the labor force for no other reason than COVID. So straight up, they had it, or a family member had it, or they were too too afraid to get it to go to work, or they had to stay home with their kids. So I mean, that was big. Like That really held the labor force back. And obviously, I, I think every month we get farther along, further along in this thing, you, you're kind of in a situation where less people have to be out of the labor force due to COVID. So... Yeah, if you look, just look at the unemployment to population ratio, it, it's almost back all the way to kind of like the all-time highs of kind of the 07 period and, and the 2020 period. So really, we're, we haven't seen a, a massive shift in, in the labor force size. The the other reason, um, I'll tell you something else that's interesting. This is just a side note. One of the other reasons it made us a lot, it, it made it a lot easier for us to pull off the hedges is... Um, and it is amazing to me, like you said, in the last 30 days, the Fed has hiked rates 100, wait, yeah, 150 basis points. In that period of time, the NASDAQ has rallied 15%, and the VIX has gotten just smashed from like 30 to 20. It's down like 50%. One of the, one of the things that drove us pulling our hedges was this, what, what I feel like is a gift, this drop in volatility. It's, it's been a bit shocking to me. Um, it, it, you know, it, and, um, you know, I know that you know this, listeners might not. When vol is really low, for the most part, it's almost always our favorite hedge because it just, it gives you so much convexity to the upside. I didn't really think we'd get a chance to buy at 20 this year. Here, here you got the VIX floating around 21. Have you been paying attention to the VIX at all? Um, and do you think this drop in the VIX is a byproduct of every, everybody already being hedged? Um, it's probably a confluence of things, I, would be my guess. Um, but what do you make of this plunge in the VIX? Um, and I'm sure you're looking out at the forward curve and all that kind of stuff. What, what, is your, what, what do you make on volatility right now? Yeah, so it's, it's funny you say that because I, I, I got long volatility features for VIX features for the first time in, in I don't know, like months to yeah. today. So same, same thing. I, I really like to buy it when it's cheap. And I don't even care if it works because just having it sitting there as a hedge that's relatively affordable, it's just it's worth its weight in gold when it comes to you know portfolio. So um, yeah, like so. Yes, we have gotten cheaper up in the front, but one of the reasons I got long stocks flipped uh, late last week was the amount of people buying VIX calls for forty plus was oh, it wow. exploded to an all time high. So it just became clear, like everyone freaked out and everyone hedged as hard as they possibly could all of a sudden. And like everyone went to cash, they bought, you know, VIX calls, they, um, obviously people were going to, were degrossing and selling a lot of stocks. So it just became kind of clear. We went too far to one side. And I think that's 
whenever whenever you see everybody buying VIX, you, it's going to collapse. Like that, that's just kind of how it works. It, it's very rare that everyone gets something right at the same time. You, usually, when everyone goes to one side of the boat, you you just want to go to the other side. Um, but at the same time, you're like, that's when I want to buy the VIX. Is when is when it gets you know kind of crushed down, especially especially closer months. So I think I think it yeah it's getting back to that time where it is a very useful uh hedging instrument all of a sudden again especially you know like like you you and i both kind of kind of grossed up a little more on stocks bought a little bit more to kind of capture this this rally well that that gives you more exposure and and when you have that that exposure on it's really nice to have have that vix kind of in your back pocket to to protect you yeah well especially for us and, and i'm not tooting my own horn but i you know i think overall right now and if we've got listeners out there and i'm off by a half a percent don't freak out uh i've always got to be careful because i'm doing this show and you know you and i both know these markets are so volatile they're like zach you said we're you know i got one guy zach you said we're down six but i'm only down 5.2 you know you're selling yourself short and i go well (laughs) yeah it's an hour that's an hour in these markets man um but i think i think we're down about Oh, I don't know. Shoot. Values now, I want to say down like 1.6 on the year or something like that. Anyway, my point is not bragging about that. My point is, you know, that sort of plays into our strategy as well, which is, hey, you're having a really good year as far as relative performance goes. Don't get smacked in the face chasing a fake out bear market, you know, rally. Um, You know, don't get too cute. If you're going to dip a little bit more into those kinds of stocks, just make sure you've got hedges, make sure you got cash, you know what I mean? Kind of just managing the risk, right? For lack of a better term. So again, you know, for those of you out there that think I'm advocating the wholesale purchasing of tech stocks, I'm not. We, you know, we did buy some more, like Chase said, we grossed up, but we're also adhering to our levels and we all, we are long volatility. So just as a disclaimer there. Um, okay. So re- one other thing I want to get, cause we got to wrap this up pretty quick. You're a busy guy and, and don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, <clears throat> thinking about Europe, looking at what's going on with energy and, um, uh, Russia and all these other kind of things, wh- where are you at on Europe's outlook? Do you think that, the, do you think that they're going to figure out a way to muddle through? I mean, higher prices, it's not going to be comfortable for probably a while. Um, you know, there's always the off the outside shot at, at some kind of black swan event, certainly in this environment. Um, but when you look at Europe, do you think that they're going to be able to muddle through? Or do you think that this may very well be the winter where they deal with what you thought they were going to deal with last winter? Yeah, I, I do think it's very possible. Um, and, and it really, and it, it, not even because it was cold, but, but it just, it started last winter just because they, their energy policy is just that bad. But I think Europe is essentially going to be uninvestable until they have their natural gas situation. Like, like really not, not only is it better, but like, it's obviously going to stay better. Um, the, you know, the easiest way to, for, for them to deal with the, the, the crisis is to limit how much their industrial users can use. And you're, so you're talking these massive chemical manufacturers and, um, people that are making really important products like, uh, like fertilizer, things like that are super energy intensive steel. And obviously if you take that kind of stuff offline or you really throttle it back, it, it just really hurts growth. And that, that's going to hurt growth at the same time you're dealing with really high inflation because of those energy inputs. Um, you know, in the U S our, our natural gas costs are, 
maybe 25%, 30% of what they're, what they're dealing with right now, because we have a bunch of our own and we, we actively get it out of the ground. They, they have to import most of theirs. And, and if you start importing LNG instead of pipeline gas, it costs way more. It's pretty clear to me, Russia is going to mostly cut them off until they, I'm assuming Russia is going to try to negotiate some peace, uh, probably this fall. And, if they kind of have their hands around Europe's neck with, with energy, they, I'm sure they just think that'll give them a better shot of Europe pressuring Ukraine into taking a deal that, that, you know, is a little more favorable to, to Russia. So I don't, I do not expect them to push, you know, their gas exports up to Russia all the way back up anytime soon. And if that's the case, they're not going to have enough natural gas. They're going to have to limit consumption, which is going to limit growth at the same time that inflation is going to stay sticky and high and that, that that's all just a terrible uh mix especially whenever the ecb is raising interest rates they're gonna have them positive for the first time in uh, like 15 years or something some super long time here soon so monetary policy is a problem uh debt crisis really never went away we just papered over it that 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 might rear its head again uh the gas crisis is going to be a problem until they actually do something to fix it or russia decides to be friends again um so i I think for me like there's there's a lot of traditional things for how oversold it is and like that would make you really want to go buy you know assets there and i want to because of all that but until this gas natural gas situation actually gets better until energy policy in general gets better there like I, i just i just don't feel like you can touch it so i so i bought japanese yen versus the dollar uh the this week and but i just refuse to buy i'm still short euros for for all the reasons i just stated now why why and, and why is your outlook on japan different it's really not it's just just a trade it, it, it was so overstretched yeah and it, you look well if if inflation's kind of peaking and energy costs of you know started to really come down so like all the import import costs are going to go start going down for for them um it's just all that all that pressure that that's, that's on the currency is kind of just coming off. So I just figured it would pull back pretty good, and so far it it, it has. That that was one of those trades though. It was like a hold your nose trade. It didn't feel good putting it on. Yeah, I can imagine. Okay, last but not least, you brought it up, and I hate to throw another one at you, but Russia Ukraine. Um, do you, we, what do you think happens there? I, it seems like I hear rumors of having discussions and then I see Russia hitting another power plant and I'm just like, okay, that's not a move toward peace. Uh, you know, not listening to the mainstream media and all that kind of stuff. What, what do you actually see going on there? And and where do you think we're at with that whole scenario? Yeah, I I think we'll get a negotiated, uh, a a negotiated peace. They're going to, they're going to take a chunk of the East and maybe a little chunk of the South. And, and Ukraine's just going to have to deal with it. Like I, it. It's unfortunate, but I think the reality of the situation is they're going to be physically controlling the territory. Um, Europe is going to be so ready for the war to end that they will lean on Ukraine to take, you know, a decent deal. I think, I think Russia will, um, will offer something reasonable enough for them to take it. So I, I assume they'll, they'll take a chunk of the East and Ukraine will promise to, you know, be, be neutral in the future and, That'll be enough for Russia to declare victory and, and for Ukraine to just focus on kind of moving forward um, with, with with the Ukraine that they have left. And the rest of the world will hate it, uh, but they're going to have to kind of accept it. And I would assume Russia starts to slowly, very, very slowly 
make their way back into uh, kind of kind of the world when it comes to you know all of their vital natural resource exports because it's just just the math dictates that the rest of the world needs them, including the West. So I I would expect that to not happen quickly, but but happen. What would, and what would the global response be to that? Let's say they reach a settlement and all that kind of stuff. Does do, do sanctions just come off Russia? I mean, is the world not, not quickly? Um, but but in the end, they they will. I mean, it, so it's already happened. Some there's been there's been actually been a decent amount of sanctions that have been that have been tweaked uh, so that they could get certain exports of certain important things out. Uh, especially in Europe, Europe has kind of dialed back <laughs> some of their sanctions. And, and, but if you think about it, a, a lot of the sanctions were like, hey, you know, nine months from now we're going to do something about this. Yeah, so that was kind of an implicit like, please wrap this up. You yeah. Know? Um, now, is it, will it be popular to roll back the sanctions and everything? Of course not, but will it will be much more quiet as they slowly, you know, trickle those off um, than, than how loud it was when they were put on. But, but yeah, I do, I do expect it, you know, at, at the end of the day to to happen. Now, is is Europe ever going to trust Russia the way they did before and just hand them the keys to the kingdom when it came to you know their their energy import needs and everything? Absolutely not. Like they they will continue to diversify. That's going to be a problem for Russia. <laughs> I, look, I'm with you logically, and I think that's likely to happen. But absolutely not. I do. You, I you've got more faith in these cats than I do, man. I, I just <laughs> I, I think they learned a valuable lesson now, and, and you know they, they, they're starting to build all this LNG important infrastructure and stuff. And I think they'll use it now. Does that mean they're going to tell tell Russia to turn off Nord Stream One and and just we don't want your gas anymore? No, they're, they're going to keep buying oil and gas from Russia and and fertilizer and wheat and you know the whole nine yards because they, they just kind of have to. How do their how do their storages how does Europe's storage situation look like going into this winter as opposed to where we were last year? It's actually decent, uh, and it's actually better than, than it was last winter. But but the problem is now the flows coming from Russia are so bad that they, they really cannot afford to have uh, a colder than average winter. They're, they're at the point right now where they – so you've, you've, I'm sure people have seen some of the headlines. They're, they're trying to dial back consumption 15% on natural gas. And I'll give them credit. That, that number is about exactly right for the math I've done on what they will have to do to make it work. Um, but but even there, like the the prices are so obscene that they're paying for for natural gas, their electricity costs. That I mean, it just chokes the economy off, and that that's just going to be the case until until something dramatically changes. And they, you know, they're making a lot more uh, deals with you know with people in Africa and the Middle East and Eastern Europe to get more more gas from kind of like little one off areas, and mm-hmm. that will help. But that's kind of a two three year story, not yeah. Like a, three month story. And I, I keep saying this last one, but seriously, last one. And, and I don't even know if you've looked into it, but something that I found really interesting. And the reason I want to address it is because I've used it as an example. Now I continue to think that you're not going to see the impact really show up for another quarter um, for a variety of reasons. But I, I want to know what you think about this. I, I was a bit surprised. Uh, not on this, not on the, not, not on the side of Microsoft because Microsoft is so, you know, their revenue stream is so uh, correlated to to corporations, right? Whereas uh, you look at Apple and it's much more of a, a consumer-based, um, you know, model. Um, but I was very surprised to see the numbers Apple put up, especially considering dollar where the dollar is at. Um, is my – but it does lead me to believe – now, again, I, I thought you'd start seeing that impact this quarter – 
but I didn't think you'd see it in earnest until third and fourth, just because I've, I've long thought when we really came out of lockdown, despite being turned, you know, despite a lot of the stimulus being turned off and, and being taken away, just that that pent up demand would really overcome most economic headwinds for, you know, one or two quarters. And I, and I kind of thought this would be one of the most, you know, celebrated wild spending summers of all time. And, and, and so again, I didn't, but, but I am a little bit surprised to see the numbers they are putting up when you look at where the dollar index is where it's at. How do you, I don't know if you've looked at that scenario, but how do you square that with everything we know? I mean, bottom line is Apple gets a ton of its revenue overseas on a currency basis. The price of their stuff has skyrocketed right in the last 12 months. Where do you? what am I missing? So usually when you ask me a question, I can, I can give you something on this one. Like I'm just as confused as you are. Um, and especially when you think about, when I think about their products, the, it, it's a classic, like one of those first things that, that's kind of going to kind of go whenever things get bad. Like if people's money's tight, like usually your iPhone's going to keep working. You just want the new one. So it's like the easy thing to put off. Um, so I would have expected especially like you say globally where the dollars is doing that much more damage. I would have expected that, you know, this to like really already have, have been a problem. And well, I then, agree and with you. Like I, I would expect it even more in, in, in the the latter parts of the year, but I, I still, even by now I would have expected that to be much worse. And I, I think that's probably worth studying because there's probably some macro clues involved. That's interesting. If you want to look into that and get back to us, I'd be fascinated to hear what you said about it. Yeah. And, and there's people out there going, well, it's because the consumer is stronger than you think. And I'm sitting there going, no, they're not. Here in the United States, you can make that argument. Right, right. right. Go look at European equity markets over the last 15 years. Look at what their fuel costs look like. Look what, you know, no, they're not. Like they're, and remember, Apple gets a, a ton of its revenue from overseas. Um, I think, I, and I, again, I should probably know these numbers, but I think it's well over half. Uh, now, um, and, and the rest of the world isn't. The consumers are not in a strong place. So that was a bit of a head screw. I mean, why, look, why we both know they're an absolute behemoth, and I think they're a wonderfully run company. And all that being said, I'm not taking anything away from them. I was just sitting there going, man, that that is shockingly strong just on a cross-currency basis. Like you saw IBM came out. IBM took a $3.5 billion hit just on a cross-currency on an FX basis. Um, I was looking at Apple going, where is that? Do they have Druckenmiller hedging their currency risk or something like that? <laughs> do you know that, by the way? That's another thing I should know. Does a company, does an international company uh, like Apple, do they have a currency hedging team in, in place? Uh, a lot of times they do. I don't think they it do. It would make sense. A ton. You know, I don't, I don't think they go, go crazy with it, but a lot of times I, I think they do have some minimal uh, like hedging that, that happens. That'd be the no interesting. Idea if Apple does, but I have I have heard that from some big corporations. Yeah, that'd be that'd be an interesting thing to do is dig through their earnings and see see if they had some big investment gains, you know, and then try yeah, to figure a, out. A lot of times them. they do it specifically for their their import costs. Like they they try to be careful with that stuff. So maybe like a supply chain team like integrated with a team that kind of helps hedge out, you know, some of the the pain points in their supply chain. Like if one commodity price rips, like it, you know, if that's going to crush them, they they try to be careful with it. Yeah, another one that's been head scratcher for me is Tesla. Like we, when you look at the input costs going up, and Tesla saying that their gross margin dropped like one and a quarter percent. I again, I'm not alleging fraud. I just I'm looking at that going. I don't yeah, understand. 
That thing's been a head scratcher since the IPS. No kidding, man. No, and it just (laughs) continues. And everybody's like, oh, that's because it's so great. And I'm like, listen, I didn't say it wasn't great, okay? But there's this thing called math. And when the cost of all of the goods that you use to purchase your car go up, you're not going to maintain the same gross margins, you know? So as irritating as that might be for the Tesla fanboys, that, that continues to be a scratcher too. And, and like I said, maybe the other part of it, Chase, is that it's just going to be like you, well, you've been saying this for a while that you didn't think the real weakness would show up till third and fourth quarter. Um, and again, I don't want to sound too hyperbolic because I am not saying this is a similar situation at all, but this does also kind of have a feel of what I remember the summer of 08 feeling like we didn't have a big rally, but it was, you know, there was hope, like there was a lot of hope and belief that maybe we were the wor- we were through the worst. And I believe there was a little bit of a rally that, that summer. Um, but, uh, I guess we'll know by the end of this year, right? Yep. That we will. All righty, sir. Well, hey, thank you as always for coming on. I really appreciate this. And uh, everybody can find you at, at Pinecone Macro on Twitter uh, and also pineconemacro.com, right? That is right. Yep. And sign up for the Cascade. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a member of the whole shoot match here, but uh, great research. You can get Chase's uh, uh, weekly and, and monthly um, macro reports for way too cheap a price. I think it's one of the best values out there. Anyway, Chase, thanks for coming on again and uh, look forward to talking to you soon, pal. Yeah, same to you. Appreciate it. All right, you guys. Well, hey, we got to cut it off here. Thanks as always for joining. Continue to have some good interviews coming, so you're not going to want to miss them. As always, download and subscribe to the podcast. Bigger number of subscribers we get, better guests, more variety of guests that we we can have on. So help us out there if you could. Anyway, have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management. Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.